Um, all right, hey, let's let's get we got a lot of stuff to do tonight. So let's let's get into it. Let me open us in a prayer. Gracious God, thank you for the privilege of coming together. We are mindful of so many in our world who don't um, have the opportunity to come uh, to a place of Christian worship and study you without fear of persecution. And so we give you thanks for that. And we ask that um, you will allow us to be open to you and to each other tonight and make this time rich for us through the power of your spirit. In your name we pray. Amen. All right. So um, tonight we're talking about, uh, we're going through people's questions. And so um, can't we just be good moral people? Why do we need religion? And for, I couldn't fit it on my title slide. We're going to talk about hell too. It's going to be great, right? When in doubt, always add in hell to the conversation. Um, so I'm not going to repeat all of these that we've been talking about, but we've, we keep going back to 1 Peter 3 um, for the idea of apology. Um, we talked about, these are just things I gave you. Um, we talked about the first time we were together. The one thing I wanted to mention tonight is, and this is very much the reactive sort of style, right? So last time we were together, which was a few weeks ago, um, we talked about the resurrection. That was a very proactive sort of apology, right? We're giving a non-believer something to think about. This is more of a reactive. They're coming to us with a question and we're trying to work our way through that question. Um, so obviously the questions our audience is asking and the common ground we can build upon are going to be important for us in this, in this uh, topic. Okay. Uh, so the, the, the question again is basically, why do we need religion? Can't we just be good moral people? So um, I, I think actually this is a little bit elementary, but I think it's actually helpful for us to define some words. So um, can we can we define what moral means uh, to be a good moral person? Like, what does that what does that idea mean? Um, and and I, I'd rather you put it in your own words. I, I did write down what Webster says. Um, Webster says of or relating to principles of right or wrong in behavior, conforming to a right standard of behavior, sanctioned by or operative on one's conscience or ethical judgment. Um, it's a lot of words. But just tell me in your own words, um, what does it mean to be a moral person? Or a, how would you, what, what, is that, what does that mean to you? As a Christian or just second, any way you want to answer that question, what does it mean to be a moral person? Essentially, to me, it might be treating somebody else like you would want to be treated. I mean, without specific. Okay, great. Treating someone else how you want to be treated, right? Jesus, kind of the golden rule, right? Okay, that's great. Love it. Good summary. Anybody else want to add to that? Romans 3.23. Don't go there yet. We're going there later. <laughs> that's, that's in the, you read ahead, didn't you? Oh, okay, great. Um, well, okay, but there ain't no such thing. Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that's where we're going. Um, but but if somebody came up and said, oh, they're really such a good person, a moral person, what do they mean by that? They don't do anything outside the law. Ah, okay. All right. So often that's good. People say that they are talking about um sort of a public morality, right? Like I know they haven't robbed any banks lately and they don't seem to beat their kids and whatever else, right? Okay, great. I think it would take commandments. That's what comes to my mind. Okay, great. Take a minute. So from a Christian perspective, we think about like what are God's commands? Those are the big ten. And are we following them or not? Okay, fantastic. Love it. To know the difference between right and wrong. Okay, great. To know the difference between right and wrong. That's that's really 
clear like that. Good. I kind of agree with that. The first one up there, principles of writing one. I think it's curious that they specify the Oh, uh huh, uh huh. Well, say say why? I love I love where you're going. Because what if you have wrong thoughts? Okay. Right. Right. Really good question. I mean, even so, I love where you're going with this. Even more basic, can thoughts be immoral or or not? Right. I mean, like that's or are there moral immoral thoughts? That's really an interesting question. Yeah. That would be actually that'd be a whole good night. We should do that. Okay, it's good. Uh, it, great, great stuff. Any other additions to this question? I like what y'all are saying. Okay, let's well, let's 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 go forward with this idea um, that um, in our culture, moral has to do with right and wrong, and um, very often we define that you know as we see people behaving, um, and. From our Christian perspective, it has to do with really obedience to God, the commandments, uh, uh, doing it others we have to do it ourselves, or the Ten Commandments, or whatever. Um, okay, I think that's good. That's that gives us a basic um, place to begin. Um, I, I was thinking uh, when we try to define the idea of moral, um, that moral can be defined either as an exterior or an interior thing. What, what I mean by that is um, there can be um, an idea of moral that everybody in this room agrees with, right? That we write on the walls and then we say, this is now moral. Or we can all have our own internal idea of what's right and wrong, right? Um, that might disagree. We might have disagreements about what's right and wrong, right? So sometimes when we're defining morality, it's an exterior thing. Sometimes it's an interior thing, right? That kind of makes sense. Um, I'm not saying that that's right or wrong. I'm just saying that's what we do, right? We, we, in our culture, we do this. Um, so I, I want to think a little bit about the pros and cons of morality as exterior or interior. Um, uh, I'm trying not to um, give, because I'm trying to do this in an apologetic way, I'm trying not to give away completely my, my faith here. Uh, obviously, I'm invested in morality as an exterior concept, right? The idea of the Ten Commandments is exterior. I didn't make up the Ten Commandments. You didn't make up the Ten Commandments. God gives them to us, and they tell us what's right and wrong. Okay? Um, but even in our secular culture, there's times where we really like exterior morality, right? We don't want every person in America to have their own definition of what is and isn't murder. It's really helpful to have one collective definition of what is and isn't murder. Um, so that when I come into your house and kill you and take all your stuff, I can't come back later and say, oh, I didn't murder them. Because um, murdering is only if you do it on a Tuesday. I did it on a Wednesday, so it's fine, right? No, our culture says it doesn't matter if it's a Tuesday or a Wednesday if you take someone's life, you know, right? So sometimes the objective thing is really helpful. Um, sometimes, even in our culture, we agree that an interior definition of morality is, is helpful. Um, for example, you know, we, we passed prohibition, outlawing alcohol in our whole country, and that went badly. <laughs> and we and we repealed it. And part of the logic was not that everybody turned around and said, wow, alcohol is good in all circumstances. But we turned around and said, maybe the government shouldn't be the one determining whether or not we drink alcohol, right? Maybe that should be a, a personal decision, right? Um, that's complicated. There are still exterior standards, right? So as a Christian, I have an exterior standard that I can drink, but I can't get drunk, right? Um, but the government, has a different exterior standard, which is I can get drunk, but I can't be publicly intoxicated, 
right? So you see the complexity of the interior exterior piece for the other. You look like you're thinking deep thoughts. From the very beginning, Adam and Eve had one rule. Yes. Okay, uh, this is really the important point we're going towards, right? How the heck do we make these decisions? And who decided? The first guy that got robbed said, wait a minute, that's not right. The guy that robbed the only <laughs> Right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> the the Rob E never liked it, and the Rob R thinks it's great. Right, right, exactly. No, so this is exactly the right point. Um, and so it, uh, it you know, it, it raises some important questions, right? Um, very basically, if we have exterior rules, like if the government makes laws, who gets to decide what those should be? Right? And if we have interior rules, um, when do we agree, right? So if we have very different ideas of, for example, what clothes are appropriate to wear in public? Like, well, you know, Sheldon thinks it's okay if he comes in Speedo, and I'd rather him not wear a Speedo to church. And how do we decide, right? Right, and decided, decided, sorry, I don't know why I picked that example. Um, right, so hopefully there's an exterior rule in that situation, right? Okay, um, uh, we're gonna, this is all gonna be important for us, okay? So we're gonna come back to some of these ideas, but I just wanted to begin by pointing out that when we say things like, well, he's a good person or um, moral people, just be a moral person, that that's a complicated concept that we're watering down into a problematic level, right? We're not explaining what we mean when we say he's a good person or she's a moral person, right? Or just be good because those are ideas that need some fleshing out, okay? And we don't all mean the same thing when we say it. All right, well, this is my last word game. Um, so the question is, why do we need religion? Um, so tell me, what is religion? And, and again, to help, I gave you some Webster's dictionaries. I thought Webster was singularly unhelpful in answering this question. Um, Webster says, a personalized set or institutionalized system of religious attitudes, beliefs, and practices. I would reject this from my children because my children are not allowed to use the word in the definition, right? Um, Webster also says, the service and worship of God or the supernatural, the commitment or devotion to religious faith or observance, a cause, principle, or system of beliefs held to with ardor and faith. Uh, and then Webster, uh, I'm sorry, Wikipedia says, respect for a sense of right, moral obligation, sanctity, what is sacred, reverence for the gods. As, as the old tiny definition of what religion meant. Um, put it in your own words. If you were going to explain to someone what religion was, what would you say? It's religion. Man's attempt to reach God. Ah, okay. So um, religion is man's attempt to reach God. I like that. Okay, good. Would it be a set of guidelines um, of a spiritual nature? Okay. <clears throat> I like that too. I, I do want to stop you, but yeah, I like that. A, a set, set of guidelines of a spiritual nature. Yeah, that sounds like a religion. Okay, that's good. What else? But well, we've got how many religions have been in the world? Yeah, there's a lot of religions. Oh, yeah, they all trying to reach God. First, yes, maybe so, but are supernatural. Right. I, I think the second definition up there is kind of mm -hmm. where we would probably hang our hats. Uh huh. Even those that are not right. Right. So there are. Jim makes a good point. There are plenty of religions that don't believe in God, right? So Buddhism, for example, most people define as a religion, but they don't really believe in God, right? 
Um, you know, they're trying to get to nirvana, but they're not trying to meet a person. Um, so, and there's a lot, there's 300 million Buddhists in the world or whatever there are. Um, okay, good. The, the word itself denotes that it's a relationship, not with God, but with Jesus Christ. Okay, so I, think that's critical. I like that. Okay, so um, so uh, Herbert's point is rather than a, a, a system, there's a relationship component for us as Christians. Okay, I love that. Good. And and again, that would be true for us as Christians, but not true for um, I don't know uh, a Hindi, right? Who probably doesn't have a relationship with Shiva or whatever. They just you know ask them to do stuff. Okay. Um, now, this is actually a really hard word to define because, um, and I, you guys did a good job of it, um, but because a lot of things that we think of as religions are very, very different, right? But some system of belief or practice around something um, supernatural or purpose-centered or, I mean, it, it gets hard to do. Okay. Um, so the, the, the next question I would ask is, is Christianity a religion? Um, and and I, I'm just going to, this is a loaded question. I'm not going to ask it. I'm just going to say, I think the answer is yes and no, right? So, and I, you, you see my little notes, but um, Christianity is a, is, a, is a religion, if by religion we mean some kind of organized structural system about um, belief and practice that relates to something beyond myself, right? So it's a, it's a religion in the sense that um, Buddhism and Islam and Judaism and Hinduism are all religions, right? Um, but it's but it's not a religion um, like any of the others, right? And this was the first thing that, that Herb said was man's attempt to reach God, right? And and I would argue that that is true about all religions except for Christianity, right? That that all religions except for Christianity basically articulate if you do this you'll get rewarded, if you do this you'll get punished. So do the good things, not the bad things. But Christianity is a little different, yeah. Would it be safe to say that Christianity is not a religion? It's more of a faith. Yeah. So you. So yes. So this. This is this get to the challenge, right? So if I'm talking to a non-Christian, um, I would probably like to make a distinction um, between um, man's attempt to reach God and God coming down to reach us, right? But I also have to be careful that I don't lose them in the semantics of defining words. But, but that's what I want them to get. I want them to get that idea that it's about relationship. It's about trust. It's not about earning something, like earning God's favor, right? Kill a sheep. God likes you more. Right. I want the Jewish faith. Right. I want the Buddhist faith. Right. Yeah. I do too. But I think it's more of a faith than it is. Religion sounds kind of dogmatic. Yep. Yep, and and dogma's a word we invented, Christians invented, right? Just right. Um, but but I think the, what we're what we're trying to get at is um, we believe that Christianity, and I, I, I again, I'm trying to be in the shoes of a non-believer. Maybe every religion thinks this, but we believe that we are different from all the other religions, right? Not just because we're right and they're wrong. But because we have a different fundamental philosophy about what we are all about. Is that, are, are we together? Okay. Um, all right. All that was just to define religion. Um, uh, and it's hard, right? Um, okay. So um, with, with, with that 
information in our back pocket. Um, now I'm trying to come back and answer this question. Um, why can't we just be good people, right? So and why do we need religion at all? And um, I, I wanna come back and say, first of all, um, I don't know that we need religion as all the other religions define it, but I think what Christianity offers is important. Um, but, but even more broadly than that, uh, before we even get to the particulars of the Christian faith, I think it's helpful to talk about this idea of um, what, what I would call, you know, subjective and objective truth, right? Because I think this is really fundamental to this question. And uh, really simply what I mean by that is um, subjective truth is truth in the eye of the subject, the eye of the beholder. And objective truth is truth um, from the perspective of something objective, right? Something that's the object. So for example, I might say, uh, my, son, my son Jonathan is in track, right? I might say, Jonathan is fast. Well, that's a subjective statement, right? Um, he's, he's fast compared to some other kids and slow compared to other kids. He's fast compared to a snail and slow compared to a comet. Right, so he's it's subjective. But then I could say Jonathan runs ten miles per hour. Okay, well that's an objective statement, right? That's a, a a clear measure that you can compare to something else. Does that make sense? So that subjective objective thing is really important. Um, and one of the challenges when it comes to something like morality or religion or whatever is um, who decides what's subjective and what's objective. Right? What's, what's the exterior rules versus the interior rules? And um, I think that in our, um, in our culture today, we are, and we have been for the last 30 years, we are leaning pretty hard in the direction of subjective truth. Right? This isn't necessarily good or bad. Um, so uh, I'm, trying, I'm trying to decide how much information to share. So uh, in terms of sort of how cultures are organized, um, we, we kind of go back from roughly the scientific revolution to the mid 20th century. People talk about that as the period of modernism, right? And modernism was very into objective truth, right? It was very much like, let's figure out the rules and the laws of, of nature and science and whatever else we're gonna follow them. Um, and, and there's, that's not good or bad, just that's just how people thought, right? Uh, and then um, really, you know, post-World War II, uh, we, we, we see a movement to more of a subjective line of thinking where, you know, I need to discover my, myself and understand myself and, and, and I'm more of an arbiter of my experience. Um, both of those are important, right? So uh, even from a Christian perspective, from a Christian perspective, it, there are some objective truths that are really important, like Jesus died for my sins and rose again from the dead. Right? And there are some subjective truths that are really important. Jesus loves me, and I've experienced Jesus in my life, right? and I've had a personal conversion experience. But both of those are important, right? Um, so it's not that one's good or bad. But uh, as we have seen this sort of shift in our culture to more of an emphasis on subjective truth, um, there are some things that uh, can kind of become problematic about that, right? And there are topics that we used to think of as objective, but now we think of as subjective. Uh, for example, right, uh, I'll give you a bunch of examples, but um, you know, I'm not taking sides on these topics. I have sides on these topics. I'm not taking them at the moment. Um, but, you know, uh, if you went back 50 years and you said, are you a man or a woman? That was an objective 
truth, right? It wasn't something that you decided, you just were, right? Now our culture asks people to decide if they feel like they're a man or woman. So we've taken something that used to be an objective outside of you, you get told, and now we made it a subjective inside of you, you get to decide, right? Um, but in all cases, the truth is not revealed. Right, so uh, it, th this is what's so important, right? Is um, when, when, when we are thinking about what it means to be a moral person or a good person, figuring out uh, like who determines that, what's, is, is there some objective truth about goodness and morality that we need to find? Or um, is it really a subjective thing I need to determine? Right? Does that make sense? Um, and, and so I, I think this is the challenge. I mean, if you watch the news today, you can hear the same event, but described two completely different ways, right? Because um, we've really embraced sort of a subjective truth. This, again, uh, this is not entirely bad. Do you think that 50 years ago, the news media didn't have a bias? Of course they had a bias, right? But they tried to hide it more. Now they don't try to hide it, but they're very open about their bias. Is it better or worse? I don't know, right? But they're, they're just different ways of doing it. Um, but all of this becomes an issue for us when we get to religion and morality. Um, because uh, it, is, it becomes very problematic when we take that subjective inclination, right, of decide I'm going to be the arbiter of truth, and we apply it to things like what's right and what's wrong, um, or who is God and who isn't God. Right? And, and many people in our culture today want to say, well, I should get to decide what truth is true for me. So maybe Jesus Christ is, is Lord for you, and that's great for you, but it might not be true for me. Um, and and that's, that's this subjective philosophical perspective of saying, hey, it's just, it's good for you, but I'm going to do my thing. Um, so are you a Christian then or not? Well, so that's the question, right? So if, so let's say you're a Christian who are, makes an argument, right? I'm a Christian, and I think Jesus died for me, but I won't say, you know, he's the way for you, he's just the way for me. Um, does that leave me in or out of the traditional Christian faith, right? These are, these are big, important questions. But behind all of that, I think, is this idea that um, increasingly our, our experience and our decisions are defining what's right, what's wrong, who God is, what we should follow God, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and um, though I'm not opposed to um, subjectivity in general, um, I, I do think it is a problem when it comes to faith, right? Um, uh, by the way, I, I forgot to say this earlier. Um, this isn't a liberal conservative thing, right? Um, this is an American culture thing. So if you if you, you know, watch conservative news media or liberal news media, they're all very very subjective, right? And they're all going to argue about, hey, we believe this thing that maybe one time everybody thought was an objective thing. Now it's kind of our perspective. Um, all right. Um, so uh, I think all of this is going to get us back to um, the, um, this, this fundamental issue about how we define right and wrong. And um, I want to suggest that, that Christianity has a unique response to the question of what it means to be good and why we need God 
And I want to suggest um, that while we are not completely opposed to that subjective perspective of our culture, um, on these topics, we do usually articulate an absolute truth, right? A, an exterior law that God brings us. And we're going to talk about why that's so important. Okay, um, so Plato said, um, to know the good is to do the good. Right? So Plato said, in, in an essence, if someone's immoral, it's because they're not educated, right? They don't, they haven't been taught what's right and wrong, therefore they're making bad choices. Um, that's a really nice idea, and I'm pro-education, right? Um, but Paul had a very different idea. So in Romans, um, Paul says, we already know the good, right? And in fact, he says, we already even know the maker of good. And, and this is our, if you want to read, this is Romans chapter 1, verse 19. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. Ever since the creation of the world, his eternal power and divine nature, invisible though they are, have been understood and seen to the things he has made. So they are without excuse. And by they, he means all humans. Sorry. For though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking and their senseless minds were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the, immortal, the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal human beings or birds or four-footed animals or reptiles. Um, so uh, Paul's point is, this is not a lack of information that we can solve by educating people, that everybody should have some intuitive understanding about God. Paul is not saying that you could grow up in the bush uh, in the middle of, I don't know, someplace where there's nobody around and intuitively know that God saved Israel from Egypt. Right? He's saying that... Um, it's not a lack of knowledge that leads us away from God. That's that the basics of like, there's a God that made us and made this world around us and designed it for us and made it just be good and made us to love each other and, and do another's way to do it ourselves. That stuff is kind of intuitive. Um, and even though we know we're not doing it. Okay. So uh, the, the problem isn't not knowing it. The problem is something else. Uh, and so, as um, Herb mentioned earlier, um, that leads Paul to Romans 3.23, right? All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And, and so part of the unique Christian perspective in this is that everybody's messed up, right? Everybody's maybe not equally messed up, um, but everybody is broken. Um, and we're not looking at a world of good people and bad people or people that make mostly good decisions or mostly bad decisions, right? We're looking at a world where everybody is making bad choices, right? All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Um, so uh, this, this idea of this sort of fun, this is the Christian idea of a fundamental self-centeredness that pervades humanity is where we begin in talking about this idea of, can you just be a good person, right? Our immediate answer is no, you can't. Like, it would be great if you could just be a good person, but we have a 100% failure rate in that, op in that task, right? And, and interestingly, um, in, in terms of apologetics, this is the easiest argument in the world to make, right? Just look around you. I mean, look how many awful things are happening all the time that people are doing, right? And you didn't, don't read the news, because if you do read the news, it's going to be one horrible thing after another. Um, so the idea of, of the pervasive nature of sin, the idea of the pervasive nature of self-centeredness, 
is actually one of the easiest arguments to make from a Christian, from an um, apologetics perspective, right? Just open your eyes. If you think people are perfect, you're crazy, or you don't know any people, or you don't know yourself. Um, uh, so uh, re regardless of how you define good or bad, you probably can tell the world is not good, right? People around you are not acting good. Um, this leads us to a couple of problems. Uh, and the first problem is, you know, okay, so yeah, I, I see that people around me are self-centered and I'm self-centered and maybe Paul's got a point about all of sin and all of the glory of God. Um, how do we get out of this thing? Well, um, we, have, we have some problems in fixing it ourselves, right? But the first problem is um, if, uh, you know, it's, it's the blind leading the blind, right? So if I'm fundamentally self-centered and y'all are all fundamentally self-centered, how do we stop being the way we all are? Well, it's like saying if I'm breathing air and y'all are all breathing air, how do we get together and just stop breathing air? Well, we're, we're not going to do that, right? Um, we, don't have any, we don't have any resources to help us do that because, you know, let's go to the wise people. Let's go to Plato. He's got good ideas. No, Plato's fundamentally self-centered, right? He's going to have more fundamentally. Maybe he's less self-centered than me, but he's still totally self-centered, right? Maybe I'm just even more. Um, so, uh, you know, if, if you get a whole bunch of sick people together and put them in a room, they don't magically become healthy, right? They usually get more sick. Um, so we need, we need some help from beyond us that's not as self-centered as we are, right? Um, and um, we also don't even know what healthiness looks like, right? So if you take a, a group of people who've never been healthy and put them in a room together, not only do they not suddenly get healthy, they don't even know what they're trying to, what healthy looks like, right? Define moral. What? I'm not sure how to define moral because for me, um, moral is just being a little bit less selfish, right? I mean, you know, moral is, well, I had all these great toys and that kid didn't have any toys. So, you know, of my 100 GI Joes, I gave him one of the broken ones. Isn't that great? He's got a GI Joe to play with now. Well, I, maybe I should give him 50. Maybe I should give him 100. Maybe he's poor and the GI Joes aren't the solution, right? The problem is like, as a self-centered person, I don't even know what I should be striving for, much less how to get there, okay? So um, th this is Christianity's response to this question, right? Well, why can't we just be good people? Why do we need religion? Well, we can't be good people because we're not, right? Because for whatever reason, you know, just the evidence around us suggests we're all selfish and selfish people can't fix themselves, right? That's really simple, right? That's a, a case for Christianity, uh, looking at 2 Corinthians 5, 17. Yes, where we are new in Christ. That's right. Old things are gone. Yeah. That's right. But we have to accept and grab a hold. Exactly. We it, um, and and the point of Paul in Second Corinthians is like we're new in Christ. Like Christ makes us new, right? And that's that's really our answer, right? Our our answer to um, the problem of immorality or sin or. Um, selfishness or whatever um, is, well, I guess it's, I, I actually, it was, it's three things, but I was, I had four things. Um, the, the first one is we have to stop defining good for ourselves. And if we had way more time tonight, um, it would be really fun. We'll do this another time. Um, but I've been doing this class with my mom um, on the Old Testament. And a few weeks ago, the professor talked about um, the word good. If you just read through the first four, five, six chapters of Genesis and follow the word good where it appears, it's really interesting. And his, this professor's argument was, and I think he's right, that the fundamental problem expressed in those chapters is 
in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and he made light, and the God saw the light, and he saw that it was good, right? And then God uh, made the dry land, and God saw that it was good, and God made everything else, and so it was good. God made people, and saw it was very good. And God is seeing things, and God is identifying what is good. And then we get to the next chapter, and God identifies what's not good. It's not good for man to be alone, right? So God is a determiner, the de de definer of good and evil, or good and not good. And then we get this tree of good and evil. No, the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And then Eve and Adam eat of the tree. Why? Because they want to be the ones to determine what's good and what's not good, right? And then the rest of the those chapters of Genesis are all about exploring that idea, right, of well, Cain wants to decide what's good or not good. And Cain thinks it's going to be good if he kills his brother, he'll feel better. And God says it's not going to be good, right? Um, so that idea of does God define good or not good or do we define good or not good is really fundamental, right? So again, the first thing we do as Christians, we say, hey, you know what? I'm not the one to make this decision. I'm not pulling myself above the bootstraps. I don't even know what good is. I need to be told and, and, and shown what good is. So very simply, um, uh, we have to experience goodness. Um, we have to learn about goodness. We have to act out goodness. And, and those three really have to come in that order. It's very important. So first, we experience goodness, right? In the Old Testament, the Israelites experience goodness because God saves them from slavery. Right? In the New Testament, we experience goodness because Jesus saves us from slavery to sin and death. Um, and it's the experience of what God does for me in Jesus that first begins to open me up to even have any idea what right and wrong is and what uh, I should be doing with my life, right? To experience goodness in Jesus, that's salvation, right? That's giving my life to Jesus. Um, and then after that, I start learning about goodness. So first we experience it, then we learn about it. Then I come and follow Jesus' teaching and say, oh, this is how Jesus wants me to live. And I've already been saved. I've already experienced goodness in Jesus. Now I can learn about that process. And then ultimately, I have to go do it. Right? I have to follow Jesus. I have to act out what he says. Um, but, but that order is so important. I am not going and saying, I know what's good. I'll be good. Right? I'm the definer of good. I'll be good. And then I'll earn God's respect. And then God will forgive me for my bad things, which is really how most religions function. We're saying, no, we don't even know what good is until we experience it because God comes down. God is the arbiter of good and not good. And once he shows us in Jesus, then we can learn from Jesus. Then we can start being like Jesus. Are, are, are we together? Okay. Your third point is just where it's at. Yeah. I mean, everything else is kind of a lead up to that. Right. You can't you know, just the working out of your salvation. With fear and trembling. Exactly. Yeah. Right. So, and, 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 and the idea is, uh, this is again um, uniquely Christian, I think. Though I'm not, uh, I'm not an expert on those religions. But um, the idea that uh, I do have agency, right? I do make moral choices. It doesn't matter what I do. But for me to make the right kind of choices, for me to become slowly a selfless sort of person, I need some external intervention, right? I need someone who's actually selfless to show me what that's like. And once I've experienced, oh, this is what it's like when a good man dies for a bad man, then I can start learning and becoming and living like that person, right? But without that external intervention, 
Who am I? I don't, I don't know who good and bad is. And I'm just making it up as I go. The gem salvation in a regard, one regard is a one time thing that's continuous. Right. Sanctification never ends. Right. Right. That's the third part of it. Right. So that's an ongoing. Sanctification continues. Yeah, yeah. So, and I just put those words there because I wanted to point out that um, salvation is, I always say, 100% God and 0% me. But sanctification is 100% God and 100% me. Right? So um, I cooperate with the Holy Spirit who lives inside me. But I cannot do that if I've experienced Jesus first. Right? Um, so um, I, I know this is just the Christian message, right? Um, but it's but it is our response to this question, right? Which I hear a lot. You know, well, let's just be good people. And I want to come back and say, well, I don't know what that means. But my experience is that that people aren't good people, and that we need someone to show us what good looks like. And first, we have to experience it before we can even be told the information. And that's that's the gospel, right? That God became human in Jesus Christ, and in His life, death, and resurrection, like loved me out of my selfishness. And now I experienced the grace of Jesus, and now I can try to be like Jesus. Yeah. Awesome. That's the message of the church. That's the message of the church, man. That's the message of the church. Yeah. Okay. Are we, are we together? Okay. Um, we're doing now. Oh, yeah. We're doing a possible objections. Um, so just briefly, um, gosh, I really, this sounds crazy, but I want to get to hell. Um, so just briefly, uh, I have a few objections. I always try to think when I'm doing apologetics, all right, what would somebody who's not Christian say in response, right? Um, of course, I'm not going to capture that perfectly, but I want to try to figure out what, where they might come from. Um, so um, my first question was, why is Jesus's way better than other alternatives? Why not Buddha's way? Right? Why not Muhammad's way? Why not Plato's way or whoever? Um, and though I think I just articulated that, I would come back and say um, Jesus's way is not rooted in um, selfish human's ability to become unselfish. Right? It's rooted in um, a selfless God who's outside of us who comes to be with us to show us how to be different. Um, as I understand it, Buddha sits under the Bodhi tree for a really long time until he just stops being selfish, right? So he achieves nirvana. He doesn't, nobody helps him do it. He just does it. Right? And, and he's still in the tomb. And he's still dead, right? He didn't get back up after he died either. Um, so, I, I, you know, that's nice, um, but I, I don't know that that fits with our experience of, well, the world doesn't seem like people are just getting better by trying harder, right? We need more than trying harder. Um, uh, if we if if we assume the core principles of Christianity, then why don't we all share the same basic internal moral compass? Um, so we were talking about this idea of subjective, right? I decide or you decide who decides what's right and wrong. Um, if there's one God who made us all in His image and all the things we posit as Christians, why don't we all sort of basically believe the same right and wrong? Well, I would come back and say I think we do. I, I think overwhelmingly the, the broad contours of our morality are pretty similar, right? And this is, we don't have time for it tonight, but this is C.S. Lewis's moral law argument. Um, but, you know, people say all the time, well, you know, all religions basically say the same thing. What they mean is we share a lot of common moral application, right? The golden rule that Jesus cites 
is not cited just by Jesus, but other, other people cite it too, right? Do unto others you do unto you. Um, there has never been a human culture that valued cowardice, right? No human culture I'm aware of from the beginning of time till now has ever said, wow, you know, being a coward is a major important virtue in our culture, right? No, like we, we have shared virtues. Every culture has valued human life. Now, some cultures value human life and sacrificed humans as sacrifices to the gods. Why? They thought it was a valuable sacrifice, right? Um, did they value them as much as we value them? No, clearly not, right? Um, but so uh, I would simply say, yeah, well, we, we do see some commonality, right? Some basic core similarity, like Paul says in Romans, right? That like we don't have to be um, told information. You already know it's wrong to still steal and kill and murder and whatever. Um, but uh, we're not doing it. Right? We're, we all see the law. We're all breaking the moral law. We're all breaking it. Um, how do we all end up with the, with the same core problem if we're made by a good God? So why are we all selfish um, if a good God made us? That is a great question. We're going to spend all next week talking about it. Is that okay? <laughs> so just for tonight, I'm going to say come back next week. Um, and, um, oh, that, uh, you know, I believe something. And that something is in conflict with Christianity. How can Christianity be right if they're wrong on that thing? This actually is a really good conversation, right? Somebody comes and says, hey, I believe in, uh, it doesn't matter what. I, I'm, I'm a vegan. And I believe that you you that animals are, are precious in the sight of God and you should shouldn't kill animals. And Christians aren't all vegans. Therefore, um, how can I become a Christian? And I would say, wow, this is a great question. Let's talk about it. First of all, let me begin by saying, we're not talking about the resurrection of Jesus. I could be wrong, right? Let's just begin by saying I could be wrong. There are a lot of things in the history of the church we've been wrong about, right? We were pro-slavery for a long time, for several hundred years. Well, almost a thousand, fifteen hundred years before we stopped being pro-slavery, right? Um, we didn't let women leave, but we had women leaders at the beginning, and then we got rid of that for a thousand plus years before we brought it back. So we made mistakes as a church, and and we have never claimed that we are perfect, right? We claim that Jesus is perfect, and that we are trying to be like Jesus, and often failing, but trying. Um, so as we said before, we are the church reformed and always being reformed by the word of God. So I'd love to hear your question about that. Let's sit down. Let's talk about it. Let's see if, if the Bible talks about that topic. And yeah, maybe the church is wrong. And then I would always ask someone, I posit I might be wrong. I hope you would also posit that you might be wrong, right? Um, and then is there a third world where, hey, you know what? You're not right or wrong. There are two legitimate ways to think about this, right? And all of that it's just rich, wonderful conversation, right? Once you get to that stage, you're having a great conversation. Um, okay, uh, other objections about um, the, the idea of, um, of Christianity uniquely defining good and, and bad and uniquely giving a solution to it. You're all Christians, so I'm guessing you probably already agree, but um, other objections that someone might ask I agree mostly with what you say, but for Christian, we need to look at the righteous, not the good. Ah, uh-huh, uh-huh, yeah. But tell me what you, what the difference is for you. We're talking about good and bad, uh -huh. and that's in their own individual mind. 
but the scripture talks about righteous. And, and I think we're mixing the kind of the. And by righteous, what do you mean? Uh, there is none righteous, no, not one. Exactly what the word says. We're but, not, we're not uh, available in God's sight without Jesus Christ. Right. So, so by, I think by righteous, you're meaning like <clears throat> sinless, like without sin and right relationship with God. Right. Because yeah. Jesus paid for that right. sacrifice. So he, he did the, uh, the work on Calvary. Right. So in, at, at the, when we stand before God, uh, we're not going to be judged by what we did, but what Christ did. Oh, yeah, right. Absolutely. Um, yeah, the, the reason I'm thinking about this carefully and is because um, I'm, I'm always interested when I'm talking to a non-Christian, if, if I can describe Christian ideas without uniquely Christian language, um, I can have more common ground, right? So, for example, if I can talk about self-centeredness and selfishness instead of sin, um, the, the word sin might be a barrier. They might stop listening to me because they're like, oh, they're back to the religious stuff. But self-centeredness doesn't sound religious. It's exactly what sin means, right? And so I, I think the same thing is, but, but I have to be careful if I start losing the concept of the scriptures by using unscriptural language. Um, I think you're right that when we talk about good and bad in our culture, we often water that down significantly. And we need to be clear if we're having this conversation that we're not talking about like preferred and not preferred, right? Like I prefer um, a medium fry, but I'll eat a small fry if it's all you've got, right? No, we're saying like, like completely right or completely wrong. Right or sinful and righteous, right? Um, and I think that's that's a really good distinction. Yeah, thank you. Yeah. Okay, um, I'm going to keep going. I know I'm not going to do this in 15 minutes, but it's going to be great. Um, but but this led me to the question: What about people who don't accept this Christian idea, right? So if if this is how we're defining good and evil, and if this is how we solve the problem of good and evil, what about people that don't buy into that? Um, and that lets us talk about hell. Um, so uh, we'll see what we can get through, but I wanted to begin by just saying, um, what is hell? So when you've heard, well, like, how do you define hell? If you were gonna define it for someone, if you were in a Sunday school class with kids, how would you define hell? Anywhere Jesus is not. Ooh, okay. Anywhere Jesus is not, I like that. Okay, that's good. A separation. Separation from, from God or from Jesus, okay. That's great, okay. Eternal separation. Eternal separation. Okay, that's important. Okay. Good. I think that's a really good definition, actually. That's probably how I would define it, too, um, is eternal separation from God, right? Um, I, I, would, I would want to make a distinction. I would want someone to understand that whether you believe in God or not in this life, whether you have a life of luxury or a life of, of you know, horrible suffering in this life, you are never separate from God here, right? So not believing in God is not hell, right? Um, because God's still not leaving you alone, even if you're trying to leave God alone here, right? Um, so hell is, is what happens after we die, 
if we are separate from God. Okay. Um, so the, the, the uh, question is often asked, how can a good God send people, or some people say good people, to hell? Um, and boy, the, the very brief response on this, usually from, from a Christian comes back in, in two forms. Um, one is uh, the free will argument, and one is the justice argument, and they're both equally important. And in a nutshell, the free will argument is um, that God, as any parent, wants his children to make real meaningful choices. And if God doesn't allow us to make real meaningful choices, then we can't be children. We can be slaves or we can be robots or we can be whatever, but to be children means to be free, right? To be able to choose for ourselves who we want to be and what we want to do, even if we make bad choices. Okay? And so our ability to make bad choices is intrinsic to our ability to be children and free. Um, and then the other piece of this puzzle is um, for God to be good, he can't be apathetic to bad choices, right? So um, if, if a parent talks to their child and says, hey, I want you to, um, you know, be home by 10 o'clock, and the kid says, sure, and he comes home at 1 a.m. or 2, 2 a.m. or whatever, um, and the parent says, I don't really care. What they're saying is, I don't, I don't care if you make bad choices, right? Your bad choices are irrelevant to me. Um, in the same way, if God said, hey, I want you to love your neighbor and you murder your neighbor, and then God says, oh, it's, you just murdered your neighbor a little bit. It's fine. Just trying to do it again, right? That, that's a horrific God, not a good God. We don't want a God like that. Um, so uh, the, the, my, my response is always, um, you cannot believe in a good God and not believe in hell. Right? Those two things must go together. It'd be great if you could. I would love to not believe in hell, right? I mean, I'm not, I'm not excited about the idea. I'm just saying I can't come up with a way to believe in a good God and not believe in hell. Because God's not good if he doesn't care about justice, and God's not good if he doesn't give us freedom, right? And so I think you got to have both. you got to have a good God, and you got to have the opportunity for us to not be obedient to that God and God to care about it. Um, uh, how do we get to hell? Um, and uh, I think this gets back to our larger question of right and wrong and morality and religion. Um, you know, do we get to hell because God just sort of says, oh, you go to heaven, you go to hell, you go to heaven, you go to hell, kind of randomly? Do we go to hell because God says, um, well, you know what, you, you were pretty good, you did that one thing 12 years ago on a Thursday, and so you go to hell? No. Um, I would argue that our understanding of sin, right, of this pervasive self-centeredness means that without change, hell is inevitable, right? Without change, um, a self-centered person is likely to stay self-centered and become maybe even more self-centered. And, and hell is basically ultimate self-centeredness, right? It's being in a place where there's no one there but me, including God. I don't want God, and I've made it clear I don't want to be with God, and God is saying, okay, you can not be with me, I guess, and I'm all alone. Uh, and I, I love The Great Divorce, and we give this book away to guests, uh, you know, and first-time guests, and um, in The Great Divorce, uh, the, the vision of hell that, that Lewis has is this shadow land, where everybody starts out in a central location, and they keep spreading out further and further and further because they have these like, little minor arguments with people. 
And like, well, I'm not going to deal with you. I'm just going to go on. And one more minor argument, I want to get away from you. And I want to get away from you. And I'm annoyed with you. And, and ultimately, they end up unbelievably isolated, right? To the point where, like, they, there's no way they could ever reach another person, right? But all by their own choices, right? All because they just want to be selfish. Um, Lewis says it like this, uh, it's not a question of God sending us to hell. In each of us, there's something growing up which will of itself be hell unless it is nipped in the bud. Okay. I really like this idea that Lewis is saying, it's not like you're a great person and God just doesn't like you. And so he sends you to hell. No, like, like you're a selfish person. And that selfishness will continue to grow in your life and grow and grow and grow in, in your life until eventually it completely dominates your life. Either we change that or, or you're going to be in hell, right? And, um, you know, it's not like God's arbitrarily doing it. Like, it's, it's who you're becoming. Um, what about people who need to hear about Jesus? Um, boy, uh, this is um, the, the hardest question to address um, in, really for a couple of reasons. One, it usually is more theoretical than anything else, right? Usually we're not talking about somebody I know. It's like, oh, well, you know, let's just imagine there's somebody on an island in the South Pacific who's never heard about Jesus. And what about them, right? So it's really hard to have those conversations sometimes. Um, but um, I would argue, um, well, I would respond with two, two um, ideas. The first is um, what God offers us in Jesus is a reflection of his love for us, right? And God loved us so much that he sent his only begotten son who should ever believe in him should not die to have everlasting life. Um, so God loves that person on that island in the South Pacific that has never had the opportunity to hear about Jesus way more than you do, random person who's proposing a hypothetical person, right? Um, and so um, I'm convinced that if you're concerned about them, God is more concerned about them. I mean, he was concerned enough to become Jesus and die for you, he's concerned about them. Um, so, uh, I don't know how God's going to solve that, but I know that he cares and more, he cares more than you do. Um, the other way I know he cares more than you do is because he came to earth, which is a really long distance from heaven to earth to tell you, and you haven't left Wausau to go to the South Pacific to tell that person, right? So don't, don't tell me that you care about them so much. You won't even go to the South Pacific, right? Get on your, go buy a plane ticket, like, if you care about it, go tell them, right? Uh, I mean, it's, it's really kind of a simple logic. If, if we think people need to hear about Jesus, we should go tell them about Jesus, right? Um, I, I guess the last thing I would say in that, and the, and the hardest thing for people to hear, is um, what Jesus gives us is a gift, and gifts can't be deserved, right? It, you don't get a gift because you deserve it. it by definition, a gift is something you didn't earn. So if Jim Gates is living in an island in the South Pacific, and no Christian cares enough to go tell him about Jesus, and no non-Christian cares enough to go tell him about Jesus, and he dies without knowing Jesus, thank goodness I'm in God's hands, but certainly there's a possibility that I'm going to hell, right? Because the selfishness that grew up in me never got changed, and I don't deserve the right to have a gift, right? I, I would like to get it, but I deserve justice, right? I deserve to be given what I've spent my life doing. Um, okay, um, what am I doing next? Um, let, 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 me, let me, no, let me keep going. Uh, let me keep going really, really fast. 
Because um, I want to talk about Jesus, because Jesus talks about hell a ton. It's very uncomfortable, right? Because we all like Jesus so much. We all don't like hell so much. But like, he just talked about William else in the whole Bible. Like way more than anyone else in the whole Bible. And so as you read the Gospels, you're like, oh, crap, there's Jesus talking about hell again. Like, quit it, Jesus. Um, why? Why does Jesus talk about hell so much? Um, well, I, I think it's the same logic. Um, you know, when, if you're a smoker, why does your doctor talk about lung cancer so much? Because they want you to not die from lung cancer, right? They, they understand the risks of your situation. They want things to change. Um, Jesus is not uncertain about what happens if we die in our selfishness. And he's not ambivalent about if we die in our selfishness. He knows how awful it'll be. He's willing to die so that we won't have that experience. And he's certainly willing to talk to us about it. Um, there's no joy in Jesus' heart as he talks about hell, right? He's simply saying, don't go there. Right? I'm telling you how to avoid this. Um, so he talks about it a lot. Um, and then more importantly, you know, we believe he goes to hell so that we don't have to. Um, we believe that on the cross, um, God made him who knew no sin to become sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And um, when you die in your sins, you go to hell, right? So it's not just that Jesus had the physical death on the cross, but that for three days he descended into hell, and the Son was separate from the Father. And three days sounds like a short time to us. But time doesn't have any meaning in heaven and hell. And um, the idea of the Trinity being separate at all for any length of time is an unfathomable experience of suffering that we just can't even imagine. Um, so it's not just that Jesus wants us to avoid it and encourages us to avoid it. He experiences it so that we can avoid it. Um, okay. Uh, so um, let, me, let me pause there. Um, my last one is kind of snipey. Um, so questions or comments about, um, about the topic of hell and how it relates to this larger conversation about us defining good and not good. It's really big. It's really big. Yeah, yeah. I just keep thinking about this whole the self-centeredness and I get that but when you think I mean I know a lot of Christians who are very self-centered and I know a lot of non-Christians who are the most selfless people I know yes but because they're like one friend in particular is Native American so he does not believe in Jesus right, right. That's really it's really hard <laughs> yeah no thanks Evan it's such a good point um and and um Lewis makes the same argument. He says, we should expect to see non-Christians who are more moral than Christians. Not that all of them will be, right? There should be plenty of examples of that. Um, because being a Christian doesn't mean um, I have become a moral person. It means I have experienced salvation in Jesus, and I'm on a path to be like Christ, right? But um, I could be really far down that path. This is like the whole story of Jesus in the, in the Gospels, right? Um, the people that are um, closer to being moral don't like Jesus very much, right? The Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes, like they are following the Torah pretty well, right? They're still clearly selfish, but they're not as selfish as like 
the hookers and the, the prostitutes and the alcoholics and the tax collectors and the traitors, right? But those people all love Jesus. Something about their life made it easier for them to recognize how messed up they were and how much they needed help, right? And something about the life of those religious people um, made it easier for them to hide how messed up they were and present a good front to the world, maybe accidentally, maybe they're not doing it on purpose. I'm not saying they're all lying, right? But they could not get to a point of saying, I'm screwed up, I need help from that guy. But the other people had no problem, right? So um, I would assume that very often we're gonna see um, really immoral people in church and a lot of people that appear very moral out of church, right? Because their selfishness might be smaller. Um, but you are always becoming who you will always be. Right? You're always becoming who you will always be. So if as a Christian, you are slowly becoming like Jesus, slowly becoming selfless and righteous like Jesus, then you will always be that. And even if you've got a really long way to go, and if you are a non-Christian and you are content with being mostly moral, um, but selfish in those places where you want to be selfish, and you won't take the help to get rid of that in your life, then you are on a different trajectory. You might be all the way over here, but you're walking in this direction, right? Uh, and you're going to keep becoming more and more self-centered until eventually that's all there is. Um, for whatever reason, it's easier sometimes to repent when your sins are more blatant. Yeah, yeah it's a good question. There's a song that goes, Lord, help me live from day to day in such a self-forgetful way. That even when I kneel and pray, my prayer will be for others. Mm, that's great. Love it. Yeah, love it. Other questions or comments about this topic? It's a tough topic. Um, okay. Uh, I, I'm, I'm, I, maybe I'll come back to this later, but um, I, I, just so you know what I was going to say, I, I was going to say that there is a problem with our problem with hell, right? The problem with our problem with hell is um, uh, I'm not suggesting we go up to our random neighbors and be like, you're going to go to hell unless you repent because that's not going to be effective, right? Um, but if we don't take seriously um, the spiritual danger for people, we're not going to be motivated to encourage them to make a change. Right. So, and, and again, we've said many times the Holy Spirit changes the heart, not us, but we can be witnesses, we can be apologists, etc. Um, and so I, I think the, the challenge for us is to say, um, of course, I don't like hell. Jesus doesn't like hell either. I don't, I don't want to talk about it all the time, but I, I really care about people's eternal destiny. And therefore, I'm going to be motivated to invite them to come and experience Jesus. And then learn about what he says and then go out and act like him. Okay. Um, hey, next week. Um, I got through all but one of my slides. I'm really proud of myself right now. Okay. Uh, next week, we're going to talk about why is there evil? That was one of the um, questions on our, our, our survey that had a lot of interest. And then um, if I can fit it in a boat or related, a bonus question will be, you know, what's the tongue of the devil? How does the devil relate to the whole problem of evil? Um, so yeah, that'll be where we try to get to next week. And um, since I'm out of time, let me close this in prayer. Lord Jesus, we are so thankful that uh, you loved us so much that you left heaven 
to come to earth so that um, we could experience your salvation and then um, live with and like you. Uh, and we pray that um, you would help us um, in our conversations with our um, friends who are not believers to be able to share um, the unique Christian story. And uh, we pray, Lord, that we would be um, highly motivated to do so um, out of our love for those people around us. Uh, and so we pray that you would give us opportunities this week to, uh, in big and in small ways, have meaningful conversations with non-believers and perhaps point them towards the Savior Jesus. It's in his name we pray and all God's people said, Amen. Amen.